0: We're studying the book of Judges, and so we're in chapter 11. Our text is going to be verses 1 through 28. Judges 11, 1 through 28. Navigate over there on your device or open your Bible there so you can follow along. The topic, Israel's next hero, Jephthah, is a mighty man of valor who gives a speech about peace before engaging in open conflict. The title of our message, Valor Dictorian. You see what I did there? (laughs) Father, we are appreciative that you promised the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that you would be in our midst when we gather together as a church. How can we go wrong, Lord, with your presence here? Take these words, Lord, that were penned under the inspiration of your Spirit. Bring them to our hearts in a very powerful, very modern way. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed, said, Amen. Amen. Movies about tough cops who push the limits to get the job done seem to always include a scene in which they negotiate with a jumper who is threatening to commit suicide. Inspector Callahan, also known as Dirty Harry, tells the jumper he's not there to negotiate. He just needs the guy's name and address. When asked why, Harry explains to him that once his body hits the pavement... It'll be such a mangled, bloody mess, it'll make identification impossible. (laughs) Even if they find his driver's license, which sort of brings the crisis to an end. Detective Martin Riggs, the original lethal weapon, gets friendly with the jumper, offering him a cigarette. When the guy leans in so that Riggs can light it, he handcuffs him to himself. And then he says, do you really want to jump? Do you want to? Because that's fine with me. Let's do it. Let's do it. I want to do it. And then he jumps off the roof with him, handcuffed to the guy. And they hit the inflatable that's on the ground below. So the moral in all this is movie cops are not good negotiators. (laughs) But I got to thinking about negotiators because Israel's next judge was a good one. Jephthah is called upon to serve as Israel's hero against the invading army of the Ammonites. He's called to fight the Ammonites. But before he agrees, there's some old business to take care of. You see, Israel had rejected and exiled him. And so Jephthah negotiates terms to make peace between Israel and himself. After he agrees to fight for Israel, he attempts peaceful negotiations with the Ammonites, seeking to avoid open conflict. So he's quite the negotiator. Ammon was Jephthah's enemy, but he sought peace. You might call Israel Jephthah's frenemy, but he sought peace. Now, the observation of Jephthah's seeking peace is a good point of contact for us because Christians are told in the New Testament, and as I quote, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We also read that peace is a fruit that the Holy Spirit is working to produce in and through us. And we remember that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. As we discuss the short but colorful career of Jephthah, we'll be looking for principles of peacemaking. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, as far as it depends on you, you should seek peace with your frenemies. And as far as it depends on you, you should seek peace with your enemies. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 11. And in case you were wondering, frenemy is a real word. I didn't make it up. I wish I could take credit for it. Uh, It is a real word. It's used to describe situations where one party is friendly toward another, but only for the benefits that it can bring, even though they harbor Secret resentment. It's a pretty good description of how Israel treated Jephthah, as you'll see. Now, the closing two verses of chapter 10 set up the action in chapter 11. After 18 years of general oppression allowed by God, yielding no spiritual improvement in Israel, an army of Ammonites encamped against Israel. It was the final goad they needed to sincerely repent and to return to the Lord. They were ready for a judge to be raised up, a hero, to deliver them from Ammon. That's the historical time period we're in God was raising up individuals. They would be they're called judges, but they're really more like heroes who would stand and fight and rally the troops against Israel's enemies. And so verse one Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Jephthah's dad was monogamous, and his wife bore him sons. At least once, however, he was unfaithful and visited a prostitute who became pregnant, bearing him a son. I say at least once, because we have no justification for thinking that Jephthah's dad was a womanizer. He may have been... Or this may have been a one and done situation, especially after the consequences of the pregnancy. I'm highlighting this to establish that the consequences of sin, they don't always take a long time to present themselves. I think sometimes Christians, we fool ourselves into thinking that we can sin quietly, below the radar as they say, without anyone knowing, and that before it gets really bad, we're able to quit so that no one knows. But... That's not always the case. There are sins that take years to manifest themselves. That's true because of God's grace. But there are other things that manifest themselves pretty immediately. And so this is a good strong warning to us uh, to not mess around with sin. Jephthah's dad took him in. Good for him. And he raised him along with his other children. That arrangement lasted until dad died and the issue of inheritance came up. You see, being the son of a prostitute in Israel, Jephthah had no legal claim to any inheritance whatsoever. Worse than that, his family apparently didn't like him, and they kicked him out. And so verse 3, Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Fled gives you the connotation that his well-being was in jeopardy. You get the impression he left with nothing but the clothes on his back. And he fled to Tob. Tob seems to have been a safe haven for the dregs of society. Think Star Wars and the cantina scene. When uh, Obi-Wan is looking to book passage on, uh, you know, to get to the other star system. And, and uh, they start messing with Luke Skywalker and he tries to do his Jedi stuff. And the next thing you know he's cutting the guy's arm off. And everybody stops for a minute, looks over and says, that has nothing to do with me. And then they go on with it. A few minutes later, uh, Han Solo blows a guy away, right? Or did they edit that out of the new one? No, is it still in there? So this is the kind of place Tob was. Or maybe in a more modern sense, like Tortuga, the safe but dangerous haven for pirates, like Captain Jack Sparrow. But that's the kind of place Tob was. That's where he fled. That's where he would be welcome, as it were, and where he could gather others that had fled as well. Now, although he was rejected and exiled and considered a pirate, Jephthah was no degenerate. In verse 1, he's described as a mighty man of valor. We last heard that title from the lips of the angel of the Lord who called Gideon that when he raised him up to be Israel's hero. It tells us that Jephthah was definitely God's choice to be judge. He's going to come to the position in an unusual way. He's going to be sought out and appointed by men. But make no mistake, the use of this phrase tells us he was God's choice from the beginning. Thinking about Jephthah and his sad life, do you have a sad story to tell? Has your life been difficult? Can you relate to rejection and exile? Probably most of us can. But it doesn't cancel out God choosing you to serve him. You need to forget things that are in your past and concentrate on the new creature that you are in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. And then in Philippians, we read that we're to forget those things which are behind and reach forward to things which are ahead, pressing toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I can't speak to everybody's past, and I don't want to make a blanket statement here that would hurt anybody in any way. But I think our society as a whole, in a general sense, has us holding on to the past, ...and living in the past. It's the basis of all psychotherapies... uh, ...or what we like to call psychobabble... ...is to get back to what happened in your past... ...and to try and deal with it. Hey, here's what happened in my past. I was born again. Old things passed away and all things became new. God the Holy Spirit came and He lives inside of me... ...so that I need not yield to those things... ...but that I can press forward and realize God's purpose for my life... So don't let the past drag you down. If you still have things you have to deal with, I understand that. But you are a new creature in Jesus Christ, chosen by God to serve him. We are each valedictorians. Now, who did Jephthah raid? Well, it's unlikely he raided the Jews or they would not have approached him to help them. Jephthah and his raiders pirated and pillaged the neighboring Canaanite tribes. They struck the enemies of Israel, not the Jews. This shows a spirit of peace. ...in Jephthah's heart. He wasn't striking out, striking back at Israel for the way that he'd been treated. As badly as Israel had treated him, they were not his enemy. And so he decided he had to make a living as a raider. And so he banded together with some other guys, he led them... ...and they went against the Canaanites, whom the Israelites were supposed to destroy... ...and he left Israel alone, even though he had an axe to grind against them. People who are against you are not the real enemy... Chances are they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Your enemies are the non-flesh and blood behind the scene supernatural powers of wickedness that seek your destruction. Verse 4. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Chapter 10 ended on this note but with the Israelites wondering who would lead them. Somehow they discovered that Jephthah would lead them. I say somehow because we don't know exactly how this was suggested. We assume they thought of him because he was a successful raider of Canaanites and that he seemed qualified. But it's more likely to me that the Lord gave the elders direction and that they sent for Jephthah out of obedience to the word of the Lord. I can see just as many people saying, hey, we don't want that guy. There's no telling what he might do to us. I say all this because we don't want to fall into the resume checking pattern of the world, picking out who we think is best or most suitable based on things like skill or appearance. We need God's man. We need God's woman. We need to proceed spiritually and prayerfully in our choices. The great example of this is the choice of Israel's first king. After the time of the judges' ends, Israel will demand a king. They want to be like the other nations. And they pick Saul because he's taller than everybody else. He's tall, dark, and handsome. And the Israelites want to be able to say, that's our king. He's like the man of the year. He's people's most sexy man, that kind of a thing. That's the king they wanted. Terrible choice as a king. So God says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse and I'll show you, Samuel, who's the king and so Jesse has his sons all line up in birth order. And Samuel is looking at the oldest son. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed is here. And the Lord says, no, not by a long shot. And they go down the line until there's no sons left. God keeps saying no. And then he asked, the Lord, uh, Jesse, asked, he asked Jesse, Samuel asked Jesse, he says, is this all of your sons? Because the answer is no. And he goes, well, David's out in the field with the sheep, but you couldn't possibly be interested in him. And he says, we're not going to move until you bring him in. And he comes in and he anoints him the next king over Israel. A little shepherd boy out uh, with the sheep. God's choice, totally unusual. And if there's anything that we've learned in Judges, it's that God makes unusual choices. And you know what? You are one of those unusual choices. I know we like to think of ourselves as really super valuable to God. That we're, you know, God is better off with us on his team. Uh, But the point of the matter is, uh, we're fortunate uh, to have responded to the gospel and to be in the kingdom. Verse 6, And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. And so the offer's on the table, but there's unfinished business. These elders had done nothing to aid Jephthah when he was rejected and exiled by the only family he had ever known. As far as Jephthah knew, they were still against him. So we're not told they did anything uh, wrong. Uh, They didn't commit any sin against him, but they omitted doing anything to help him. This small community, you know, that they were from, Gilead there, and um, they knew what was happening to Jephthah, and they just let it happen because, after all, he was the son of a prostitute. He had no inheritance. We'd be better off with him gone. And so Jephthah is trying to figure out where their heart is at. Verse 7, So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Now, I don't think Jephthah is looking for an apology or anything like that. He wanted to know if they were willing to be at peace with him. He held no grudge against them, but did they harbor hatred against him? I say that he held no grudge against him because the last guy that we were studying, Abimelech, who was the son of a concubine... He's a step up from the son of a prostitute. He was overlooked by his family, and he said, I have a way of dealing with this. I'm going to kill my 69 brothers. And he does. One escapes, and then he sets himself up as a terrible king over Israel. Jephthah didn't do any of that, even though he was probably in a more powerful position to do that. And so he's sincere with these elders. He wants to know, where are you guys at with this? Because when I needed help, You didn't help me, and so I need to know if we're compatible at this point. It's going to be hard to command men that hate me. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now this be our head, or be our leader, indicates they were willing to submit to Jephthah after the battle. It was a formal way of saying that Jephthah would be their leader. They were recognizing God had raised him up to be judge. We want you to command the army. That's the immediate need. But he says, well, where are we at with all of this? And they said, we're asking you to be the judge. We're recognizing that you're God's man. And we're fine with that. And so it's a gesture of genuine peace. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, Shall I be your head? And he wanted to be clear. Shall I be your head? He was asking if they indeed recognized him as judge. And they did. Now, did you catch the tender phrase, take me back home? After all they had done to Jephthah, after the way he had been treated by his brothers, he still considered Gilead his home. I want to go home. How easy would it have been for him to say, hey, my home is here in Tob." I'm with these guys that stand with me. We raid together. This is my real family. But he says, no, I want to go home. I want to be a part of what you guys have. It's amazing he harbored no ill will, but instead held on to fond memories. Verse 10, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Before the Lord in Mizpah means that either at the tabernacle or before the high priest, everything that had transpired between the elders and Jephthah was ratified in the presence of God. A true peace was achieved. Jephthah and the elders were reconciled. Together they were reconciled with the Lord. In unity, with God leading them, they would stand against the Ammonites. That's the narrative. In it are some real nuggets regarding peace and seeking peace. Let me highlight a few obvious ones. I'm sure you've seen these and others. First, although grossly mistreated, Jephthah did not grow bitter. He did not seek any retribution or revenge against his family or against the elders. He wanted to just be folded right back into relationship with them. More than that, he did not grow bitter towards God. He did not blame God for his life being difficult. Instead, he respected God, raiding only Israel's enemies. And when he was approached by the elders, his goal was reconciliation. He pressed them for unity. The unity of God's people was more important to Jephthah than his own feelings. Finally, Jephthah brought everyone together before the Lord so that God would get all the glory for this. This whole episode could have gone differently. It could have gone badly. But Jephthah saw to it that it went godly because at heart, he was a peacemaker. Now, in the remaining verses, as far as, far as it depends on you, you seek peace with your enemies. I ran across this de- sort of a definition of what it means to be a peacemaker. Uh, each of these sentences has a scripture verse after it. but I'm just going to read it straight through. I think you'll see how it's all based on the word. A peacemaker is someone who experiences the peace of God because he is at peace with the God of peace through the Prince of Peace, who indeed is our peace. And who therefore seeks to live at peace with all others and proclaims the gospel of peace so that others might have joy and peace in believing. That's a mouthful, but peace seems to be important to the Lord. And here's what I think it's saying. If you focus on what God has done in making peace with you, you will concentrate on being at peace with everyone else. What has God done? I was his enemy, now he's made peace through the cross. And I have peace with God, and I experience the peace of God, and I want that for everyone else, even those that are opposed to me. Jephthah had resolved his frenemy problems with Israel, but he still had enemies in the Ammonites. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come out to fight against me in my land? This is totally unexpected. No previous hero had tried diplomacy, let alone the pirate of Tob who was known for his daring raids. If anybody was going to go straight to war, you'd think it would have been Jephthah. But he says, no, we're going to talk about this first. If you are truly at peace with God, you won't be rocked when others challenge you. You derive your identity from your union with the Lord, not from the opinions of others. And so you don't need to lash out at others to defend yourself. Verse 13, and the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. It seems that Israel is always being accused of claiming land that belongs to others. In our modern world, people get worked up against Israel because they say, for example, she will not allow there to be a Palestinian state. The truth is that Israel has offered the Palestinians a state of their own on at least five separate occasions that can be documented historically. The real problem is that the Palestinians and others in the Middle East and around the world refuse to recognize the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state. The idea of peace for them is the extermination of all Jews. And so when we think about peace talks, you have one party, the Jews, offering concessions for real peace. And we have the other party, Palestinians or whoever it might be, their position is, as soon as you're all dead, there will be peace. And there doesn't seem to be much wiggle room in that second opinion. And so nothing's changed since the time the Ammonites came. The claim of land was false. It was a revisionist history. And so uh, Jephthah gives them a history lesson, beginning in verse 14. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. And he said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when the Israelites came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. They went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together, encamped in Jahaz, and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. They defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. A lot of history there. Let's just boil it down. Jephthah told the king of the people of Ammon that it was never their land... Israel took no land controlled by others who were at peace with them. The land in question was a part of the spoils of an Amorite conflict. The Amorites chose to go to war and attack Israel. God gave them the victory, and he gave them their land. And now the Ammonites were saying, the Amorite land is ours. And Jephthah says, yeah, it doesn't work that way. And he says in verse 23... The Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people. Should you then possess the land, will you not possess whatever your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? And so, Jephthah says, we fought, our God gave us the victory... When you fight and you win, you think your God's given you the victory and given you the land, so we're on an equal par. The problem is, uh, this land was never yours to begin with. And so it's a totally false claim. While Israel, verse 26, dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aror and its villages, and in the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for 300 years. Why did you not recover them within that time? And so this is an argument that Israel had possessed this land for Three centuries, during which time the Ammonites made no efforts to recover either peaceful efforts or violent efforts. And so their argument was simply a smokescreen for their aggression. So verse 27, Therefore, I have not sinned against you. You wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. Now, that doesn't sound like much to us. But that is a terrifying statement for an Israelite to make. Because these Canaanite people, like the Ammonites, they understood what God could do when his people were walking with him in obedience. He couldn't be stopped. They they were annihilating people left and right when Joshua came into the land. And even during the time of the judges, after long periods of oppression... God was raising up a hero, and each time, incredible victories, miraculous victories took place. So this is a very, very stern last warning that the Ammonites might want to think twice about what they're doing. Our current United States Secretary of Defense, retired General James Mattis. You know that his nickname is Mad Dog. He's a warrior, but he prefers peace. When diplomacy fails, however, watch out. My favorite quote of his goes like this. We've backed off in good faith to try and give you a chance to straighten this problem out. But I'm going to beg with you for a minute. I'm going to plead with you. Do not cross us. Because if you do, the survivors will write about what we do here for 10,000 years. I'm scared just reading it. That's what Jephthah was saying to the king of the people of Ammon. He was pleading with the Ammonites to not cross Israel. If they did, they'd regret it. And guess what? Here we are 3,200 years later talking about what Israel did there. Verse 28, king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. As much as it depended upon him, Jephthah sought a peaceful solution. But it wasn't to be. And we're going to see next time that the Lord delivered the Ammonites into his hand. It says, with a great slaughter." Now, we can glean a few more peacemaking principles from Jephthah's dealing with the Ammonites. First of all, he didn't take their aggression personally. He didn't get angry about it. He stayed reasonable. He offered them peace. It's because he knew there was something greater going on than just his feelings. I'll go out on a limb here and remind all of us that Israel was always to remain optimistic that Gentiles would convert. Sure, their immediate mandate was to destroy the Canaanites, but along the way... Any Canaanite who trusted the God of Israel was brought into the fold. Their very first battle in the land of Canaan was against Jericho. And the very first thing that happens is that Rahab and her family are saved because they believe in the God of Israel. If your enemies are non-believers, remind yourself their eternal destinies are of critical importance. You're to try to maintain peace with them even though they're against you for their good and God's glory. What good does it do for you to win something over them and to get it over them when they're on their way to hell? It's no good at all. Peacemaking requires we be patient. Jephthah was willing to wait, giving the king of the people of Ammon time to respond. He sent messengers twice. We don't always need to jump on something immediately or at least without seeking clarification. As peacemakers, we're not to compromise the truth, however. Jephthah's answers to the Ammonite king were concise ...and truthful. He didn't yield, not one bit. He he said, hey, we can can deal with this peacefully... ...but it has to be truthfully. We can't be those who want to achieve peace at any price. Peace is a goal, but it must be genuine. It must rely on the truth. Now, we're not going to see Jephthah's victory until our next study... ...but let me peek at it in verses 32 and 33. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them... ...and the Lord delivered them into his hands... And he defeated them from Auror as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel-Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. If we were making a movie about this, we'd spend a ton of time on the battle scenes, inventing new ways of showing off Jephthah's mad warrior skills as a man of valor. I mean, that's what most movies build up to, Right? these gigantic battle scenes. And kudos to Hollywood for thinking of new ways to engage you, you know, new weapons and new ways of hacking people to death, you know, and stuff. And and you're like, yeah. And this is nothing like that. It's like, but I mean, think of it, 20 cities. Imagine the fighting. Imagine the warfare. Imagine the glory. And yeah, God went with Jephthah and they took these 20 cities and it all went to the Lord. And, And so that tells us that All we need to do is be on the right side. And so a good question to ask is, am I right with the Lord in my current struggle? Keep it in context. Ask these two sub-questions. Number one, am I experiencing the peace of God because I am at peace with the God of peace through the Prince of Peace? That has to do with your relationship with the Lord. And then secondly, am I therefore seeking to live at peace with all others and proclaim the gospel of peace so that others might have joy and peace in believing? For some of you, the place to begin maybe is to realize you're at war with God. You are His born enemy. If you have never been born again, you are God's born enemy. You're born in trespasses and sins. You're the enemy of God by nature. God has made peace with you. At the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Lord took the penalty for your sins, rose from the dead, and offers you eternal life. That peace is offered by the Holy Spirit when the gospel is preached. And your will is free to make a decision to trust Christ and have your sins forgiven. To come in and have the peace of God that passes all understanding. And then to be a peacemaker. If you've never had that experience, you've never been born again, then that's what you're here to do today. You're here to... uh, come to grips with the fact that if you died today, you would not go to heaven. But you can, and you will if you trust Christ. Amen?